The reading is from Ezekiel, chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. It's headed, The River from the Temple. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the west. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross, he asked me. Son of man, do you see this? Then then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedai to En Eglem. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks to the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. We've been spending the Sundays during Lent thinking about hungering for God, thirsting for God, and we've been looking at various psalms, psalms where the the writer cries out to God, longing for a closer sense of his presence, longing to know God with them in times of difficulty, in times of dryness, in times of struggle. And we're ending that short series today still on the theme of thirsting for God, hungering for God, but with a picture of God's abundance and the promise that God gives us that he does provide for our needs, that he does fill us afresh, that he pours his love and grace and justice and mercy through us in great abundance. And I picked this passage. It's a particular favourite of mine. It's a quirky, unusual passage And what we've just heard read, you think, what on earth is that all about? Picture of a man going out with a measuring stick. Think of your geometry lessons at school and going out and just measuring and um, going and seeing how deep the water is uh, as it goes further out. So I want to put a bit of context in first. 
to explain what's happened and, and where we've got to in this point and, and who this man is that is measuring. So we're in the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet, chronologically and within the Bible coming towards the end of God's, the time of God's people throughout the Old Testament. So a lot has happened. And at this point in the history of God's people, they are in exile. They have been taken from their land and taken to Babylon at this point. And they're living in exile. The prophet Isaiah speaks about this and and all those books towards the end are around the same time. Before the exile happens, during the exile and then after the exile. But for God's people, this is a hugely important time. They're away from their land. They're away from where they've known where they wanted to be a strong nation. So to begin with, it's a sort of embarrassment. They thought they were going to be strong and mighty and defeat the the nations around them. And to have this powerful body and army come in, conquer their land, and to take some of their brightest back to Babylon. It's terrible. And they're living there wondering, God, you've given us all these promises of our own land, of our own place, and yet here we are, away from all that we know. What's to come of us? What's to happen to us? If we were to look at Psalm 137, we read a psalmist talking about the same period of time. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And that was their big question. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? They were not where they belonged. They were in a different place. But vitally, they were no longer near the temple. And the temple was the key place of worship and of presence of God to his people at this time. And if you remember back to the journey that they've made, they've, they've been in Egypt, they've left Egypt, they've spent time in the wilderness, they've gone to the promised land. Through that time, they carried with them the Ark of the Covenant, where they believed God's presence was. And then once they were settled, David had the vision of building a temple and drew up the plans. And Solomon, his son, was able to bring those plans to fruition. And the temple was built and the Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the temple. And every year, for one day, the high priest could go into the holiest part of that temple and meet God. The temple was the place of meeting God. And they weren't there. They were removed from the temple, unable to sing the songs because God with them was no longer with them separated geographically and spiritually from God. So you can imagine what life was like and the thirst and the hunger that these people are experiencing. And Ezekiel has a vision during this time and it begins back in Ezekiel chapter 40. If you wanted to look at that, it's page 871. And it just fills in where we've got to. 
In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you. For that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. So in this vision, this man appears with his linen cord and his measuring rod and says, come and look. Let me show you what God is promising and you are going to be able to tell your people. And he shows them the rebuilding of the temple. And so the next few chapters are that image of the rebuilding of the temple, the spiritual dwelling place of God, a promise that they would go back to their land, but more importantly, that the temple would be restored and their relationship with God would be restored. Now, one of the things they did learn while in exile was that, yes, they could worship God. Even though they weren't in their own place and the temple was destroyed and they were distant from it, they were learning that God was still with them. So that was part of the lesson. But there was this promise that they would return. And we know from other books, and you have to go back near the front of the Bible to Nehemiah, where we see in Ezra the rebuilding of the temple actually taking place. God is promising them, these days will come to an end. Your time of exile and distance from me will come to an end and you will be restored in your land and the temple will be rebuilt. But the vision carries on and this is where we pick it up in Ezekiel 47 and that's on page 880. So he goes back to the entrance of the temple and water is coming from underneath the temple and the water is pouring down through the temple and then outside And the man goes along, and this is what I love, and he measures. And to begin with, it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it goes higher and higher and and deeper and deeper. And along the sides of this river, you can imagine flowing out from the temple, it is bringing refreshment to the land on either side, and trees are growing up. And there's that picture of fruitfulness. And the sense of God's love and abundance pouring from the temple. Fantastic picture for God's people in exile, in the dryness of their spiritual life at that time. But more importantly, showing that that who God is isn't confined to the temple. This is a picture of God pouring from beyond the temple, through the land, bringing fruit wherever it goes. And we know ultimately to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews that the history of God's people is going to pour abundantly for all nations, for all people. God wants to be known to all his people. And that's why I love this picture, because it's a promise in the driest period of the life of God's people, of what is to come. An abundance of love 
and grace and mercy. And that image is repeated throughout the rest of Scripture. We've looked at some of these verses already through our service, but John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus stands up at a hugely important feast and says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The streams of water will come from Jesus to his people. He becomes the temple, God living within him, him in God. No longer needing that day a year of encounter with God, but by knowing Jesus. Those streams of living water flow from God to Jesus to us. What a fantastic promise. And John 10, 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have it to abundance. The promise of this abundance of God to us all throughout our life, in our dry periods, when we're hungering for God, the promise of abundance. And it carries on the last book of the Bible, Revelation, the final pages, chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and so it goes on. And that prosperity and abundance, the same image, but flowing from God's throne in heaven. It's a picture we've got to take seriously because it keeps coming up throughout Scripture. The abundance of God flowing and bringing fruit wherever it goes. We've looked at what it means to thirst for God, to hunger for God. And I wanted us to end in this image because this is what God lays before us. We do thirst for him. But look at what is on offer. And when we see what's on offer, we might question, well, why on earth do we thirst? That picture of the water of life and Jesus being that eternal stream. And as we know him, that stream flows through us too. The water is flowing and yet we feel thirsty. Why? What is going on? So I want to spend a a short time with some, some practical thoughts as to to why that image is not always our reality. That we don't live day to day, not always sensing the flow and abundance of God in our lives, but longing for it because we know it's possible. So a few thoughts, some of them might not be relevant to you, but I pray that one or two of the things I might say might resonate And might be things that you can take away and think, yes, I am thirsting for God. And I see this promise. But maybe there's something in my life now that I need to change or something I need to put into place to allow that flow to continue. I wonder whether we limit our expectation of God. God's people had that sense that he resided in the temple and not beyond that. 
So they limited their encounter with God to one specific place, to a specific period of time in the year, and only special people could have that. And that that was their experience. But that's changed. We can encounter God, whoever we are, wherever we are, whenever, during our week. But I wonder whether we limit that. There is a sense in which we think it's only in the temple. It's only when we come together. It's only when we, we sing the songs and we have that sense of something happening within us that we think, well, it's only limited to those special times. And God says, no, it's not limited. My abundance is not limited. And I wonder whether we're putting the brakes on by not having that expectation that we will encounter God as we stand washing up, as we're on the train, as we're in the difficult places. Are we just assuming it's only at particular times that we meet him? I wonder whether we limit him because we we look at other people and think it's only those other people who encounter God. Maybe the crazy ones. The ones who talk about him all the time. That's not for me. I'm not quite like that. Maybe we think we've got to be somebody special to experience that abundance of God. And that's so far from the truth. God pours his abundance to each and every one of us. But we all look around and compare ourselves, don't we? Ten days ago, some of us were at a conference and there's some big mighty speakers on the stage, Justin Welby, Nikki Gumble, And you can look at them and think, my goodness me, they're special. God must work in their lives in an amazing way because, wow, I'm nothing like that. And that is so wrong. And the joy of that conference was the vulnerability that these mighty leaders, because they are mighty leaders, stood and shared their vulnerabilities, shared their difficulties, their challenges. And we realized that they were like us, that they were not on a pedestal. In fact, the pedestals were being pulled down at that conference. It was phenomenal. It's not who you are. It's not what theology degree you've got. It's not how well you speak. It's not how holy you appear that allows you to experience more of God's abundance. It's there for us all. But if we assume it's for other people and not for us, we limit God's ability to work within our lives. Sometimes we think it's about what we know. It's about who we know. It's not about pounding more and more knowledge into our heads before we experience that. It is good to learn and to deepen our understanding. But we don't have to wait. If we had to wait for that, none of us would experience God. Because we will never understand him until we meet him in heaven. But somehow we think that we've got to fill our head with knowledge before we're able to have that encounter with God. It's about who we know, not what we know. And maybe we don't believe the promises. Maybe we don't know the promises. Maybe we need to become more familiar with what God is saying and take some of those verses of promise and repeat them to ourselves. I know you by name. I have called you. You are mine. My name is written on the palm of your hands. 
When you walk through the desert, I am with you. I sing over you. I rejoice over you. This is the God who shouts to us from Scripture and says, don't you get it? I love you. Experience all that I have for you. We've got to know those promises and we've got to believe them. And we've got to voice them even when it's the last thing we're feeling. So maybe reason number one is that we limit our expectation of God. Secondly, maybe we're paddling in the shallow end. It's a bit easier to be there, isn't it? Maybe we're only just discovering, maybe this whole sense of who Jesus is is new to us. And that's our rightful place at the moment, that we're in the shallow end. But we're going to go deeper. And we want to get deeper. We're not going to stay in the shallow end. That's fine. But maybe you've been in the shallow end for years and years and years. And that's not so fine. And maybe that's through fear. Maybe I don't want to go deeper. And that's a really good image, isn't it? Because that fear of water and going deeper into water. That sometimes it's fear that prevents us from going deeper. Will it be in over my head? So maybe that's a reason we don't experience the abundance of God. Because we're paddling around in the shallow end. And it's time to move. If we truly want to experience the abundance of God, what we have to recognise is that it's a constant flow. It's not a tap that's turned on and off. And we stand under it like the shower. We turn it on for a bit and then we back out. Actually, that's a better image. It's the shower, isn't it? If you've got a power shower, even better. It could be really amazing. And then we walk away from it. And we're not experiencing that flow anymore. That's not how to look at God. It's a constant flow. And if we want to go deeper with God, we've got to experience that constant flow in our lives. And that's about the direction of travel that we are on. If we're in the shallow end, if we're in the the river at some point... Our direction of travel needs to face going deeper and deeper. We don't want to go back. We don't want to stay where we are. We should be choosing to say, God, I want to know you more in my life. That's the way that those pangs of hunger, that thirst will be fed. Sometimes it's about actively choosing to turn our face of direction towards God. And to think about the things in our lives that are coming in the way that prevent us from doing that. The choices we make in life. And we're bombarded with choice. Day by day by day, we have to make decisions. We have to choose things that we're going to do. And there's something about activating our mind at this point and thinking, is my choice going to take me closer to God or further? From him. And if it's going to take us further from him, don't do it. If we genuinely want to experience his abundance, we can't make choices that will take us further away from him. And there are so many things that could do that. We live in the southeast, in the busyness of all that is around us. And that's a reality. 
when Paul and I go to Dorset, suddenly we think people have time that we don't seem to experience when we're here. Time to chat in the streets. A slower pace of life. There is a reality of the life that we experience here that is busy. Our streets, our roads are busier. Driving has more tension in it. There's more people living in a compact area. We can't change that. But busyness can become an excuse. We can say, actually, I can't spend time with God because I'm too busy. We are where we are. But how we choose to live where we are can help us draw closer to God or further away from him. So how are we going to deal with the busyness of life and still draw closer to God? And each one of us will have to think of that for ourselves. How do we not allow that busyness to overwhelm us? It's okay to be busy, but if it overwhelms us and takes us from God, then it's not. What about past hurts and disappointments that are niggling away? We can't go through life without being hurt. We can't go through life without facing disappointment. Are they going to hold us back as a grievance? God wasn't there at that point in time. Because if that's holding us back, we won't experience his fullness. Are we willing to acknowledge some of those hurts and disappointments and ask God's healing to be released from that chain to allow us to move forward. There's temptations all around us. Temptations that will pull us from God. A whole host of them. I don't need to describe them. But the world has different values to God. And the temptations come in that guise of worldly values rather than godly values. And when that temptation comes before us, Do we grab it or do we resist it? The choice we have will determine whether we're drawing closer to God or further from him. And our Achilles heel, we've each got our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. And that's where the temptation will come more than anything else. We've got to know ourselves. We've got to know where those dangers lie I'm not going to confess all my Achilles heels to you, my vulnerabilities, because that's not really what today is about. But I'm going to say I've got them. I'll share one of them with you. It's very easy for me to feel that I'm not content with the life I've got when I look at other people. Generally speaking, I'm very, very content, but there are times when I think, oh, if only, if only I could live like this, if only it could be like that. And I know what feeds those. Lifestyle magazines and Facebook. (laughs) And I will read my lifestyle magazine for those with their heart in the country, country living, and I'll look at these beautiful houses. It's not so bad living in a house that's not your own. This is when we had our own house. (laughs) And I look around at the house that that we built, and we built an extension, we decorated, we made it ours that I loved. And then I would read the magazine and think, hmm, it's not so great after all, is it? And I'd feel discontent with what I had. And when I'm discontent, I don't feel close to God. Maybe the answer is to not live in your own house. You don't feel it quite so strongly. That's my Achilles heel, to look at what other people have. And something I've been really happy with and that I love is 
seems tarnished in comparison. And Facebook, people's perfect lives. And I know in my head that what people post is an image rather than a reality. And if I could be a fly on the wall into their life, it would not look like it appears on Facebook. And I know that in my head. But if I'm feeling a bit low and a bit down, and I see these perfect marriages in front of me and these perfect children and these perfect holidays, I think, my goodness me, what am I doing? I'm putting all my values on something that isn't even real. It's a glittering bauble that isn't real. And I look at it and my own life looks tarnished in comparison. So what do I need to do when I'm feeling like that? Don't buy the magazines and don't read Facebook. It's easier said than done. I can stop buying the magazines because the temptation isn't there all the time. But every time I open up my computer, just have a look on Facebook. I never post anything. I just look at everybody else's lives. But if I am serious about wanting to draw close to God and I know that that's one of my weaknesses, don't do it. Because I want to draw close to God. And he has given me a love of who I am. And he has given me the most wonderful family. And we live in a fantastic home. And I want to rejoice in that and not to feel that that's tarnished in any way. I don't want to take away the joy that God has given me in that. So I have to know myself. And I have to know those temptations that lie around me. The promise that God gives us in these pictures is one of abundance. As the river flows, the trees grow with fruit that is beyond our expectations, fruiting every month. Well, if you're a gardener, imagine that. Every month, your apple tree is fruiting. And as the river flows, what will we look like? We will become more like Christ. The evidence of God's abundance in us will reveal itself in how we are, becoming more and more like Christ. Sharing the fruits of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I will be changed. I will be transformed as the river flows through me. And as it flows through me, it will reach out to others. And so those around me will experience more of God's love because it's flowing through me without me even needing to do anything. But by being who God has made me to be, It will flow through. And I will know in the depths of my being that God is with me. That he's with me at every moment, at every time of my life. I won't have to doubt that. He may feel distant at times, but the deep knowledge will hold me there. And I can call to him, draw close to me no matter what is going on in my life. And that's the most precious thing. To have at the core of who we are, that deep sense of God in us, close to us, with us. I want to end with a prayer. This is a prayer that was written by Sir Sir Francis Drake. And it's, um, it's quite a scary prayer. Because we can talk about being hungry for God and thirsty for God. There comes a point where we've actually got to go and do something about it. I think my challenge today is that 
But if you're serious about going deeper with God, about knowing that abundance, it takes a bit of effort on our part. And it might be any one of those things that I've talked about, or it might be something else that I haven't mentioned. But we have to go away and examine ourselves and ask God to work in us and to take some of those things away or to add some of those things in. So I'm going to pray this prayer. It starts to disturb us, Lord, so it's not an easy prayer. Because we can't do this passively. We've got to engage with God and let him work within us. And as I read these words, I'll read them slowly. Just think about your own life. Think about your own desire for God. Think what's holding you back. Think what more you need to be doing. And pray this with me. Disturb us, Lord. When we are too pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we dreamt too little. When we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future in strength, courage, hope and love. This we ask in the name of our captain who is Jesus Christ. Amen.